We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. good to see you all today. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmaus. It's a joy to gather with you and to to sing and to confess and to pray and now to receive the word together. If if you're a guest, uh, and I'm glad that you're here. We'd love to meet you after the service or connect with you in some form or fashion. Uh, We'd can do that. You can do that through going to the Connect table in the lobby. Connect with us that way. We'd love to get your information, send you information, answer questions um, for you. You could also go to EmmausKC.com forward slash connect. EmmausKC.com forward slash connect or scan the QR code that is behind me. That'll take you to that link. You can fill out a digital connect card that way and, and also sign up for our weekly newsletter, which tells you all the announcements of what's going on here at Emmaus. And so we would encourage you to do that. It's a joy to have you here today. And then after the service, I'll be standing down front here. I'd love to meet you if you're a guest and, and see your face and hear your name. And uh, if you are just anyone here would like prayer or to connect about Jesus or talk through any of that, I'll be here as well. would love to meet with you about that. Hey, in the lobby, we have uh, a lot of baby bottles, and those aren't just like a free giveaway in case you happen to need a baby bottle, um, but, uh, but though our people have taken those and kept them from time to time. Those are there specifically to help raise money for Rachel House Crisis Pregnancy Center. So we do this once a year. Um, the, the way it happens is you take this home and you fill it with whatever means of currency you would like, except I guess digital currency, that won't work. But you can fill that up with a check, with cash, with coin, bring that back by by Sunday, April 24th, and drop it back off at the hospitality area, and we will get that to Rachel House to support the ministry that they're doing in crisis pregnancy, and so just wanted to encourage you to do that. And then also, if you're a kids volunteer, next Sunday after church, we're having a um, volunteer training for kids. It'll be upstairs in the loft. Uh, pizza's provided. Your whole family's welcome, so you don't have to separate for the, the two hours after that, but there's going to be a training there. And the heart behind this is we want to offer the best discipleship and care that we can to our children and to our families, and we can only do that if our people are trained in how to actually lead our children well on Sunday mornings. And so Patrick and Tabitha and Ashlyn have put together a training and invite you to that. So if you're a kids volunteer, please make that a priority, if at all possible, next Sunday, right after this service. Um, Pizza, kids, family, it'll be great times. And so I encourage you to do that. And then Covenant members, coming up on May 1st is our next members meeting. We'll be at Smithville Lake at Sailboat Cove. We've got a pavilion rented. We're going to be grilling uh, burgers and dogs and throwing balls and hanging out. We're also going to be baptizing in the lake, and it's going to be freezing. And we're also going to uh, be welcoming in new members and, um, and, Lord willing, new elders as well. And so excited about what the Lord is doing there. And so make sure that you have that plan. I believe it's three until... Um, five or six will be hanging out that day, and so you'll join us there. Hey, in a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to get into this text. Um, I just want you to know that uh, the text we have today is like the longest portion of Scripture we're going to cover in the whole book of Acts, right? It's somewhere around 71, 72 verses, right? So I hope you brought a lunch. We're going to be here all afternoon, but, um, but, but in, in all reality, it's, what that means for us is this. Um, We're not going to expound on every verse and its meaning like we do most of the time. We're also not going to be be able to cover every important thing that there is to cover here. There's a lot of truths that uh, we'll have to kind of skim over and not land on. My hope is that in context with this passage, and I believe it really needs to be preached in context, all of these together, that in this context we'll grab the two main points from this to be able to walk away from here, um, loving Jesus, knowing his love for us, and emboldened for the gospel. And so uh, I'm going to ask you to pray for me as we expound on 70-plus verses. I'm going to pray for you as you receive 70-plus verses, uh, and we're going to pray for the Spirit to preach a better sermon than I prepared. Let's do that. Jesus, I thank you that you are kind and good to us today. I thank you for your grace to bring us here to to open this text, to sing songs, to worship you, to, to confess our sins and be reminded that you are our advocate. Father, we we need you more than we even realize we need you. Today, would you show us that in this text? Would you embolden us with your mission? Would you embolden us with your presence? Would you embolden us with the power of the Spirit? Would you embolden us with assurance that you stand as our advocate at the throne? Preach a better sermon than I have prepared, Spirit. We need to hear from you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 
Now, journeying through the book of Acts at this point, where we're at is, is we've, we've seen Jesus uh, at the beginning of the book. If you remember, he's ascending into heaven, and before he goes, he gives his followers, his 120 followers, a, a command. And his command is this, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. I want you to wait for me. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And when my spirit comes upon you, he'll give you power. And when you receive that power, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus outlines this for them. He gives them this command. He ascends into heaven. They go back to Jerusalem. They wait. And then just as he promised, the Spirit comes. And just as he promised, the Spirit gives power. And just as he promised, they are now his witnesses. And as they go out and start proclaiming the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, crowds begin to come in faith. Multitudes begin to gather. The people begin to believe in Jesus and place their faith in him and repent and be baptized. And the church begins exploding in growth. Thousands upon thousands coming to faith in Christ. And in the midst of all this going on, there's some unrest that's happening because the religious leaders are seeing a problem that's coming. They're seeing a problem develop in this. They're seeing the attention drawn away from them. They're seeing the attention drawn away from the temple. And they're beginning to see, hey, there's an uprising going on. This is leading to a bad place, we believe. And they begin to try to silence this movement of Christ. And as they're trying to silence this, they arrest the believers. They imprison the believers. They beat the the believers. They threaten the believers. And what results every time this takes place is the believers praying for boldness and going out and preaching the gospel again. And thousands more coming. That's where we pick up today. Now, last week in the text, this growth has led to growth pains. This growth has led to to the church having problems. There's there's people who have been missed, that have been forgotten, that haven't been cared for, and they come in and they go, hey, let's care for those people. Let's bring in a system and bring up more leaders, and we want to continue seeing what the Lord is doing through the body being taken care of well, and so they're leading that, out in that. And then has this beautiful verse for us at the end of last week's passage, I know we have 72 of our own verses, but we're going to spend a moment on last week's verse. It says in chapter 6 of Acts, verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many number of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many number of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, here's an encouragement for you as we see what's about to happen. Where we're at right now is a transition point in the history of the church. To this point, they've preached the gospel in Jerusalem. To this point, crowds have come to faith in Jerusalem. To this point, people are coming from outside Jerusalem because they're hearing what's going on, and so they're coming to hear the gospel and to be healed, and they're receiving Christ. But to this point, the witness has been in Jerusalem. And today, the witness is about to leave Jerusalem. Specifically, next week's text, it goes out everywhere. It goes past Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here's what's encouraging about that to us today, church. It's to these people in the first church, to to, to the first church that's going on here in Acts, you and I are the ends of the earth. Right? In our Western mindset, we think of Africa and India and the Amazon. These are the ends of the earth. we got to get the gospel there. And that's true for us. That's the way we look out. But to them, it's you and me. They didn't even know anyone was going to live here yet. And so as we gather in North America, in Kansas City specifically, and we receive this word today, here's what this is. This is God's message. This is God's assurance of his love for us to bring the gospel to us. Right? We're getting to hear the story of how he orchestrated history, the details of history, and even the opposition and the persecution of his people so that his name would go forth and you and I could hear about our resurrected Lord today and have faith. This is his story of his faithfulness and his love for us. Now, in context, what's been going on that we see here in chapter 6, verse 7, is this very important piece It says, And many of the priests came to obedience of the faith. This is important because to this point, not only has the gospel remained in Jerusalem, but the gospel's also been received by the crowds, but not by the religious leaders. There's a turning point that's happening here. What's beginning to happen is that even those who have stood in the synagogues and the temple and proclaimed um, faith to God through the law and through sacrifice, they're beginning to understand the law and the sacrifice are not the ends, Christ is. 
Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He is the, the, where the temple has been leading us. He is our avenue to God. And they're beginning to come to faith in this. And this is threatening the entire culture of their nation. The priests and the religious leaders, they're understanding for, for centuries we've taught, you come to us. You come to the temple. You come to us as leaders. You bring a sacrifice. You offer that here. This is where God resides. God lives in the temple, and he lives among his people, and he lives in his people's land. And out there, those are all pagans. This is where God's at. And so they've called people in, but they've missed something really important. All along, God has been sending people out. And God's also present out there with the pagans in the pagan lands, with the sinners. And so he begins to unpack that for us here. This is the movement that we begin to see. This is the teaching that's been going on. Jesus has said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. You don't come through the priests and you don't come through the temple. He said, I am the fulfillment of the law. That is not the end. And it's threatening their system. And so now, because of this, we'll have an understanding, perhaps, of why they respond so aggressively to Stephen. Jesus' teaching and his apostles' teaching has all been uprooting this whole temple system and culture. Because it was all about Jesus in the first place. Chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is one of the deacons that we were introduced to last week. He's one of the men that was called out to care for the people of, of the church. But he's not only one who cares, he's not just good at administration, he's also a bold proclaimer of, of the gospel. And Stephen's been proclaiming the gospel and he's been doing miracles and he's been doing signs and wonders and, and, and the people or the crowds are coming to him and they're believing and the religious leaders have to silence this. They have to stop this. They, they have to stop this movement away from the temple to the person of Christ. And so they decide to act on it. And they falsely accuse Stephen. It tells us that when they, uh, they came and they opposed him, and they bring opposition to what he's teaching, but when he doesn't back down, and when the crowds don't believe the religious leaders, and they don't back away, they turn to another tactic, and they actually raise up from within their party uh, people who will lie about Stephen who intentionally lie about what he's teaching and where he's leading the people to go so that the people will stop believing him. It gives us two characteristics, two descriptions of Stephen that I think would be really good prayers for us as followers of Jesus. It says that he was full of grace and power, number one. And it says that they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, number two. I've been praying this week for myself and for you that, that we would be a people who are full of grace and of power, and that we would be a people who speak with wisdom in the Spirit when we speak, that God would fill us that way and use us that way so that the gospel might go forth in bold ways from us. So they gather people together, and they begin to lie about Stephen. I find it interesting that while they are falsely accusing him, of preaching heresy. They themselves are actually trespassing on the law by bearing false witness, intentionally. You see, they're not ultimately worried about what the law actually says. They're worried about the culture that they've established through the law. They're worried more about their interpretation of the law and what that means for their way of life and their way of living and what they have created. So they're willing to break it 
in order to stop him from destroying it. It says at the end of our passage there that they spoke words against him falsely. They said he is speaking against the temple, he is speaking against the law, and he's speaking against Moses. Right? In other words, he's teaching heresy. Don't believe what he's saying. It's false. And as they gazed at him, as they stared him down on trial before the council, it says his face looked like that of an angel. It should make us remember, if we're familiar with Scripture, Moses in the Old Testament. When Moses had been on Mount Sinai with, with God and the presence of God was upon him, and when he came down, his face was glowing as if he had been with God. And Stephen is so full of the Spirit. The presence of God is so upon him that when they look at him, his face doesn't look angry. He's not mad at them. He's not aggressive towards them. He has the face of an angel responding to them with gentleness. A glowing presence of God before them. It must have been disturbing because it doesn't go well. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 53 is Stephen's response. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? So they bring false accusations towards him. And then the high priest goes, Are these things true? And Stephen could have said no and been done, but instead he preaches the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts. He proceeds to give them a history lesson. He proceeds to teach them of their own history, a biblical theology, if you will, of the Old Testament. It's very similar to what Jesus did in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is on the road on the way to Emmaus with two of his followers who don't recognize him. And he asks them, what's wrong? And they say, have you not heard about Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and killed? And we're confused. This is the very day Jesus has risen from the dead. They don't recognize him. And so it says that he doesn't just turn to them and go, hey, that's me. He actually turns them to the Old Testament, to Moses and all the prophets, and teaches them about himself from the Old Testament before he reveals himself to them. Similarly, Stephen's about to go back to Moses and the prophets, but even before that, he's going all the way back to Abraham. And he's about to take the grassroots of their faith, the Jewish faith, this obedience of the law, this coming to the temple. He's about to go to where it all began and give a history of the patriarchs and the people of God to bring them to an understanding, to a lesson, that God has never been limited to one location. He's never been limited to the temple, and he's never been limited to his people He's a God on the move to redeem a people from all nations. So let's look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 50. We're going to break it down. Let's look at the first eight verses. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after, this, his, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Verse 5, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. But he promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them a covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So his first stop on this survey of history and his theology of the Old Testament here is with Abraham, the beginning of the faith. And his, his point is this, was Ab- did Abraham meet God in the temple? No, there was no temple. Did, did, did he meet God um, because he was a keeper of the law? No, there, there was no law. Did he meet God in the promised land? No, there wasn't even a promised land yet. Did he meet God because there was a covenant with him? No, there was not even a covenant yet. God met Abraham before Abraham was in the land, before he was in the temple, before he obeyed the law, and before he agreed to a covenant. God met Abraham where Abraham was at, as a pagan in a pagan land. He met him as a pagan in a pagan land. Abraham, in other words, did not make the first move. God did. 
Abraham didn't make the first move of faith. God made the move towards Abraham and brought him into the faith by searching him out in this far off place. And so Stephen's message begins. You think the temple is central? You think God's presence is only here in the temple? You think God's presence isn't out there with the peoples? You think God's presence doesn't go to the nations? God began his presence with us in the nations. He met us there before he brought us here. He did this. He goes on, chapter 7, verses 9 through 16. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there was a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, um, and our fathers could find no food. But when they heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out, to our, uh, he sent, um, out our fathers on their first visit. Verse 13. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family and became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid at the tomb of Abraham that had been bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. Not only did God meet Abraham in a pagan land as a pagan, but God met Joseph and was present with Joseph when Joseph was rejected by his own family and at the lowest of the low places, a slave in a pagan land called Egypt. If you remember the story, Joseph was that um, kid who had visions and dreams from God that his brothers were going to bow down and worship him. Probably should have kept that to himself. But instead he decides to tell his brothers, hey, God gave me a vision that you're going to bow down and worship me one day. I don't know when that should start, maybe today. His brothers don't like this message. They take him. They're like, we're going to kill him. And they throw him into a pit to decide how to kill him. And one of his brothers steps up and goes, hey, why, why, why kill him? Let's sell him into slavery. So they sell him into slavery to slave traders heading to Egypt. And then they tell his dad, we, a, a bear got him and a wild animal got him. So he's taken to Egypt. He's sold into slavery. There in slavery, he's falsely accused of heinous sin. He's falsely accused of raping his master's wife. He's imprisoned. They're in prison. God gives them the ability to interpret two dreams. And when he interprets these two dreams, one of the interpretations is, you're going to get out of prison. You're going to die. The one guy dies. The other guy gets out of prison. But when he gets out of prison, he forgets to tell Pharaoh about the dream interpreter. And so Joseph remains in prison for years. He's been rejected by his family. He's been sold into slavery. He's been falsely accused of raping his master's wife. And now he's been forgotten in prison and he's left at the lowest of the low on social, uh, the social rung of, of his spirits. He's just left without hope. And God meets him there. God is there in that place, in the prison of Egypt. And God then establishes him as second in charge of all of Egypt. We don't have time for that whole story. But he's put into second, in, be, to be second in charge of all of Egypt second only to Pharaoh himself, a famine comes into the land. And when the famine comes, Joseph's family, his brothers who had rejected him and his father, they have no food and they run to Egypt to get help. And when they get to Egypt, Joseph's the one in charge of giving out food. And Joseph could have been like, not you. Everyone else gets food. You definitely don't get food. But instead he welcomes them and not only sends them home with food, he invites them to come live with him in this city, in this kingdom. So they come in and they live with him. And Stephen's saying, listen, God was with Joseph when at his lowest in a pagan land. You believe he needs to be with the righteous in the temple only. You're missing the point of the scriptures. And then he tells us in chapter 7, verses 17 through 43, a little longer passage for us. Hang with us. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had guaranteed to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up, for th brought up three months in his father's house. And when he, um, in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. 
And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Verse 26. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, and an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. And there came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. And this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him. They thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go out before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt? We do not even know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring, me to, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephim and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So he takes us to the next picture of this journey, and this is with Moses. And a God who met Moses in Moses' most vulnerable and desperate places. A God who was with Moses when he was a baby in the midst of a genocide. A baby who was hidden in his house, and God was there present with him, protecting him for three months when all the babies around are being slaughtered. A baby who was then taken and put into a basket and floated down the Nile River. If you've watched National Geographic, you know this should not end well for him. A baby in a basket on the Nile is not a safe place. But the Lord's present with him and brings him to a place of delivery. The place of delivery happens to be the hands of the daughter of Pharaoh. The very Pharaoh who's trying to kill the baby. And yet then God is present and protects him in the house of his oppressor raises him in wisdom and strength and protection, and Moses becomes prince of Egypt. And then one day decides to go walk amongst his own people, the Israelites, and as he is doing so, he sees oppression taking place, and he steps in to stop it, and he kills an Egyptian who's beating the Israelites. And then he's misunderstood. The next day he tries to help out an argument, and they say, are you going to kill us too? And he must flee. He's been found out. There's a false accusation about him and his character. And he has to leave. And he is an exile out into the wilderness. And he's there for 40 years. And Stephen goes, guess where God met him? Not in the temple. Not in the tabernacle. That wasn't even here yet. Not in the Holy Land. In the wilderness, God met Moses in the desert on the sand in a bush. And furthermore, in that bush, God goes, this is holy ground because this is where I am. You think the temple's the only place that's holy. You think God's presence is only here, but I'm telling you, God's presence was with Moses on holy ground in a bush in the sand. God's presence is everywhere God goes, and that place is holy. 
Furthermore, then God says, now Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. And God sends him back to the very people who rejected him and said, who do you think you are, our judge and our redeemer? He sends him back as their judge and their redeemer. And he leads them out and leads them into the desert. And there in the desert, Moses is performing signs and wonders. And he's speaking the very words that God tells him to speak to them. And he's receiving the law from God. This very law that these religious leaders now are saying Stephen is teaching heresy about. And he receives the law and presents to them. But in the midst of all this, the people of Israel keep rejecting him. They keep pushing him aside. And they keep turning back to the idols of Egypt, refusing to hear from him. Refusing to accept the truth that he's teaching them. And they continue to reject Moses. And for 40 more years, they wander in the wilderness. Stephen's making a point through this. God sent Moses back into his people to rescue them. He met Moses in a bush, in the wilderness, on the side of a mountain. And then he uses him in his rejection and in his exile to go back and rescue his people. The fourth point that Stephen brings out for us, chapter 7, verse 44 through 50. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with them, or with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations of God and drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? So Stephen says this, listen, God was in the tabernacle, and God was in the temple, but God was never confined to the tabernacle and confined to the temple. Like, the heavens are his throne. He doesn't sit in the temple in the Holy of Holies. He sits in the heavens, and all of this that we see is merely his footstool. What kind of house do you think you would build for him that he could rest in, that could contain him? You're merely a man, and he is God, and his presence is everywhere. It's so much bigger than this temple and this place. So we see his sermon. His main main understanding of the text, his exposition is over. What he has left are his pastoral exhortations, if you will. But here's his point, again, in summary. God was in a pagan land with Abraham. And God was in the prisons of Egypt with Joseph. He was in the Nile River and the desert bush with Moses. And God is with his people now, wherever they go. And not only that, but God then used the suffering and the opposition of all of these men to spread his word forward, to multiply his people. Now, at this point, you go, okay, Stephen, this has been a little hard. This has not been the the easiest sermon. I mean, they're probably not sitting as nicely as you are listening to me right now. They're squirming in their seats. They're getting upset. They're talking amongst themselves. There's frustration brewing. They're angry at the preacher, and they're angry at the message. And and you want to go, okay, now, Stephen, that's been great. They got the point. Now, Now, be gentle and land the plane softly, right? Soft touch down here. Bring in the conclusion. That's not what he does. Look at his conclusion. Wouldn't you like this to be our pastoral exhortation for you? We'll start it this way. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. His landing was not soft. It was hard upon them. They're stubborn. They're stiff-necked. They think that they're circumcised. They think they're right with God. But though their body be circumcised, their hearts are far from the Lord. Though they hear hear the, the law, they have not heard the law. They're hard-headed, and they won't listen to the teaching of the law from the prophets, from Christ himself, and now from Stephen. 
He said, do you, which, which of the prophets who taught us about the law did your fathers not persecute and kill? And which of the prophets who proclaimed that the Messiah was coming, who would be the fulfillment of the law, the Messiah was coming, who would once and for all end sin, who was the climax of all of this temple and this law and the words of Moses, who among you, which one of your fathers did not kill every prophet that spoke of him coming? And now, you know what's worse? You took your father's sins a whole step forward. You didn't just kill the messenger, you killed the Messiah himself. The very one who was sent to fulfill the law, you slaughtered and killed. I'll give you a few moments to think about how you think this set with him. Did they receive it with brokenness? With weeping? with gnashing of, sin about, gnashing of teeth about their own sin? As Matthew led us in prayer, did, did they come to this place with this broken heart for the sin in their hearts that they have been so rejecting of God's generous grace towards them? No. Verse 54 through 60. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. They're enraged to the point of their teeth grinding. They're angry. They're mad at him. They're mad at what they're hearing. They're mad at the conviction that's being proclaimed. They're mad at what this is about to do to their whole culture, their whole system. And in the midst of their anger, as their fury is raising and they're about to come at him, he looks up, full of the Holy Spirit, and he has a vision. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father. And he tells them so. Maybe similar to Joseph, might have gone better had he not said anything. But he tells them so. He says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Son of Man whom they had killed. The Son of Man whom they had rejected. The Son of Man who was the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. And his words were condemning to them. You killed this man. So the text tells us that they can't take what they are hearing. They can't take his vision. They plug their ears and they scream loudly, ah! Perhaps your kids have been there <laughs> or you've been there with your kids. They can't receive what you're saying. They don't want to listen. So they plug their ears and they scream loudly to drown you out and they rush him and they drag him into the streets and they throw him on the ground and they commence to kill him with rocks. His body being bruised and broken and bloodied. And as he's being hit with rocks, he looks up and he has so much grace. As Stephen faces the ultimate rejection of man, he turns to Jesus for his reception. Men are rejecting him and he goes, turns to Christ and he says this. He says, Lord Jesus, receive me and do not hold this sin against them. As they reject him, he looks to Christ for his reception. And as they brutalize him, he prays that God would not hold it against them. Church, some of us can't even forgive people for hurting our feelings. He's being slaughtered. And he echoes the heart and the words of Christ when he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. And then he falls asleep, dies. 
and standing there overseeing his death is a man by the name of Saul. Saul's a religious leader, an up-and-coming religious leader. We would say that by age 21, he's likely one of the most educated Pharisees in all of Palestine. Somewhere around the equivalent of a couple PhDs in the law that these men are defending. Which means he knows good and well what's happening is wrong. He knows about the false testimony, the false witness, and this false execution. And he stands and he oversees it and approves of it. And they lay their coats down at his feet in honor. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of this execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This was not the end of the persecution. This was the beginning of it. And a great persecution comes out of it. Saul going house to house, dragging fathers away from children, mothers away from husbands and children, imprisoning them, and what we know from history is ultimately killing many of them. He ravages the church. And it tells us that everyone but the apostles flee. They all leave Jerusalem. Remember, we're talking tens of thousands at this point who have come to faith, who are now fleeing into the countryside, running. If you know your Bible, you know that in chapter 9, we meet Saul again. And we meet Saul when Jesus meets Saul. And Jesus meets Saul and he changes everything. He redeems him, and he saves him, and he forgives him, and he calls him, and he sends him. And he sends him through suffering. And Saul becomes the greatest missionary we've known, taking the gospel literally to the ends of the earth, writing much of the scriptures that we find after this point. But that's not our introduction to Saul. Our introduction to him is overseeing this false execution of Stephen. I wonder how much Stephen's words echoed in Paul's heart night after night after night. Now, lest we think that the Christians flee out of fear, cowards. The next verse that we'll look at next week says this in verse 4. Now, those who, are scared went, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. Persecution breaks out. They run for their life, but they don't run in fear and cowardice. They run with boldness with the gospel, spreading it wherever they went, just as we've seen over and over again in the book of Acts to this point. Because you see, this is the very way that God spreads his word. He makes himself known and spreads his presence and his glory to those who have never heard and those who have not received him, often through opposition and suffering and persecution. Now, as we conclude, I'm going to give you two points for us to take with us. The first is this. There's no greater hope that any of us have than that the judge of all mankind would stand in our defense. There's no greater hope that any of us have than that the judge of all mankind would stand in our defense. Stephen is about to die, falsely accused. Uh, these accusations being flung at his feet. The mob is enraged. They're about to take his life in a brutal way, and he looks up. And when he looks up, we see in verse 55 through 56 that we read, it says this, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Church in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, It is appointed for man once to die, and after that, the judgment. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus will judge the living and the dead at his appearance. 
In Romans chapter 14, verse 10, it says, we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What we see in scripture is that Jesus is the judge that we're all going to answer to. But Jesus is also the defender for all who look to him in faith. R.C. Sproul illustrates it this way. He said, imagine a trial, a courtroom. The two people in the courtroom who stand are the prosecutor and the defense attorney. The judge is sitting, the one accused is sitting. The prosecutor stands, lays all their accusations at the feet of the judge against the accused, and then rests their case and sit. When it's time for the defense attorney to stand, there's no one there. There's no one sitting next to the accused to stand up next to him. There's no one to stand and defend him. He looks helpless and hopeless. All is lost. But then the judge. The judge stands from his seat, and he steps down, and he says, I'm his defense attorney. And he commences to speak on behalf of the accused. Can you imagine the response of the prosecution? Stuffing their ears. La, 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 la. They don't want to hear. This is not going good for me. And can you imagine the relief and the response of the one accused? <sighs> the very one with the power to condemn me, to sentence me, is the very one standing to defend me and receive me. It tells us, Matthew mentioned this in his confession. Well done, Matthew. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But if any of you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, the atonement for our sins. Hey, don't sin. Do everything you can to not sin. Walk in faithfulness and righteousness. But when you do sin, remember this. All hope is not lost. For the judge is also your advocate. And not only is he your, your advocate, but he's also posted bail. He's paid the penalty. He has died for you. And so take a deep breath and gaze into heaven and smile for your Jesus stands to receive you. So church, would you look to your advocate? Would you look to him and would you have peace in your heart for he has received you through your faith in him? Like when, when the enemy stands at you with all the accusations of all of your sins bringing before you and you feel the weight of those upon you, look up. See your advocate standing to receive. And remember, he has already died for these sins. And he now stands in defense. And he also is the judge. So I know how this is going. Be at peace. And if you're an unbeliever, I plead with you to trust this Jesus. Your hope is not in the church, the temple, some religious system. Your own sacrifice, your hope is in the sacrifice that has been offered in the fulfillment of the law. Christ himself, the only way to God the Father. Look to him and believe. I would love to talk to you about that after the service down front if you have questions about that. Second thing for us to take is this. God has always and often will continue to use opposition of his people and his message to spread his glory to the nations. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Stephen was hated and falsely accused and killed, and God used this to spread the gospel. And even Christ himself, even Christ himself. As my mom says, don't often get to quote my mom, as my mom says, God made stones into gospel seeds. God made stones into gospel seeds. So church, go. Go into your homes and your cities and declare the message of life in Christ. Talk about his life. Talk about his death. Talk about his resurrection and call people to believe in that. They may receive and they may oppose. They may even threaten, 
and attack you. But if opposition is the means by which God spreads his gospel, then declaring the gospel is a win-win. If they receive it, win. If they oppose you, win. So let's be bold. Let's be filled with the Spirit. And let's go into the streets and let's preach Jesus. Every week at Emmaus, we get to have communion. Today we do so, and as we do, we do this as a reminder, but we also do this as a declaration. It's a proclamation. We are saying as we do this, we believe that Christ is our advocate because Christ's body and blood has been shed for us. We believe this once anew. Today, I pray this emboldens us. It moves us forward as we come down and we take the broken body and the bread and we take his shed blood and the juice and we remember that he is our advocate because he died for us. So church, let's do that. And then let's go. If you're um, here and you're an unbeliever, you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, then what we would ask of you is not to come forward and take this with us. Instead of coming and taking this bread and juice, our prayer is that you would take Jesus today. That he would be your meal, that he would be your substance, that he would give you life. Again, I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have looked to him in faith for salvation, he is your advocate and we invite you to take with us. And so in a moment, after I pray, you'll stand, you'll exit to your right. We'll start at the beginning of the room and move our way to the back. You'll exit to your right, you'll come down, you'll receive hand sanitizer, Come across and you'll receive the elements, the bread and the juice. You can go back to your seat and take that. We'll conclude with one song and then our benediction, and then you'll be dismissed. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your death. I thank you for your defense. May these things all embolden us to proclaim these things to those who have never heard that they might believe and be saved. May the gospel not terminate in on us. May your good news not end in our receiving it. May it not stop within the walls of this theater. But Father, may your presence go with us as we are filled with the Spirit into the streets. And may there be holy ground as we proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to those who have not heard. You met us as pagans in pagan places, and you have brought us into your family. And we pray you continue to do so with more and more. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, I love you. Come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com. 